Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Good morning, everybody. Another episode of Green and Growing right here in Atlanta, North Georgia. You're listening to 95.5 WSB. Happy to be with you on a beautiful Saturday morning. And I bring you so many cool interviews, people and guests that you wouldn't hear from otherwise that I get so excited about. This one in particular It's been months in the making, and I'm so fortunate to have finally caught up with Diane Flint. And my thanks goes to Josh Fooder, the Extension agent in Cherokee County, where I live, for introducing me to Diane. And last month, she wrote a book. It came out, Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South. And this this is going to be an interesting conversation for all of you, us Southerners who love our fall fruits. Good morning, Diane. Good morning, Ashley. It's great to be with you. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. It was a a long journey and a deep dive into the region, my region. I was born in Georgia, born in Atlanta, and I grew up in West Point, Georgia. And a deep dive into a fruit that many people don't associate with the South. Honored that Josh has joined us, Josh Fooder, because you all have had a history in, in the making of this book. And Josh has such a passion for apples. Hey there, buddy. Hey, Ashley. So in the last three years or so, Josh, that I've been doing this show, you know, you have taken so much time with me for the listeners, which I appreciate. Before we get into Diane's story, talk to people about your passion for apples and kind of the tasks that you have taken on meeting growers and really interesting characters all throughout Georgia. You know, I was a Hort major in school, but uh, never thought too much about apples until, you know, I ended up getting the job with Extension here in Cherokee County. And the home that I bought came with uh, about 40 or so year old apple trees that uh, were heirlooms and uh, really opened my eyes to what apples could be or should be, used to be. And then just happened to be here in Cherokee County where Lawson's Nursery was in operation for close to 50 years. Uh, So had that for real firsthand experience with meeting one of the great Apple historians and retired nurserymen and Jim Lawson. Both of you have met really, really fascinating people. But as part of the book, Diane, Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, um, the shift in Southern farming led to the disappearance of a lot of uniquely Southern apples. And I'm sure that's a long story of kind of how those have gotten lost over a couple of hundred years, but where do you suppose we begin in the efforts that are being made now to bring back some of those really, really neat vintage varieties? Well, we had some great efforts underway, and the orchard in North Georgia that that Josh has worked on for several years now is is one of the best. I see the same thing beginning in in places like Lexington, Kentucky, and in Tennessee. There's a preservation orchard. Um, on a state historic farm in North Carolina, in Pinnacle, North Carolina. And then there are nurseries across the South that are selling these old varieties. So if your listeners are interested, there are places they can go to find the varieties. Even better, they can take a grafting workshop from Josh and make their own apples using grafting wood from his orchard. Josh, I think that's really key, what Diane just said. And Diane, I know you want to talk about the biology of apples, which is fascinating, and we will. But Josh, you can't just take a seed from an apple, 
plant it in the ground and expect that exact same apple to grow on that tree. That's correct. Uh, you, you actually can't even take all 12 or uh, 15 of the seeds in one fruit and get 12 or 15 of the same apple. Each one of them will be unique in character. And you've had really, as Diane mentioned, really interesting grafting workshops. Tell people a little bit about what that is and how that works, why that's important in establishing the variety that you intend to. So the only way to guarantee that you're going to have, say, a Yates apple, which is a Georgia apple, is to graft it or clone it. So we're taking uh, existing wood from a known uh, Yates tree, grafting it onto a rootstock, which that rootstock has characteristics that make for you know, a dwarfing tree or a medium-sized tree, something like that. And so, you know, if you take that wood from an existing tree, uh, put it onto a rootstock that you are going to then replicate those characteristics within that variety. And the grafting workshops make you a little nervous sometimes because sharp objects are involved, right? Yeah, we're dealing with (laughs) grafting knives, which are, you know, basically a razor blade. So it can be a little nerve-wracking. And Diane, in talking about the biology of apples, I'm thinking, you know, in a couple of weeks, Halloween parties already happening, maybe bobbing for apples. And I learned from listening to an interview that you've done, they're filled with air. Um, So that I, I didn't even think about that when they're floating on the water. So talk to us about the biology of your favorite fruit. Well, like Josh says, apples reproduce sexually just like humans do. So every seed's a new apple. But humans have known how to graft for over 2,000 years. So the process Josh described is is really a pretty simple one. And uh, Southerners, when Southerners over hundreds of years recognized wild apples, seedling apples that they liked, maybe they tasted good, maybe that apple tasted good or, or lasted in storage for months and months and months or or came in June when there was a real hunger for for fruit. Uh, when Southerners noticed these apples, they replicated them through grafting. And in that, they really put their desires on that fruit. One of the ways that apples stimulate human desire is that they are packed full of flavor. They're an ideal, in a way, an ideal vehicle for conveying flavor to not just humans, but mammals. So Apples are, the flavor resides inside the cells, and when we bite into an apple, we break the cell walls, and the juice that's in those cells, called vacuoles, explodes into our mouth. You mentioned apples are 25% air, so it's almost like there's a hydraulic pump in there that pushes the juice and the aromas into our mouth, The, the aromas go into our scent receptors in the top of our mouth and in our nose. So in just one bite, we get this complex flood of sugars and esters and acid and and sometimes tannin. Who doesn't like to bite into a crisp apple in the fall? Oh, absolutely. Fully associated with this time of year. And something else that you've said, Diane, of cider making, which I would be remiss if I did not mention Foggy Ridge and the story with the cidery that you began in the late 90s. But you once said of cider making, it's getting the apple in the bottle with as little manipulation as possible. So that really speaks to trying to capture all of that flavor and not really alter it a whole lot, right? It does. And that was our mission at Foggy Ridge Cider. We were the first cidery south of Massachusetts in the in the 20th century. Sometimes I like to say the first legal cidery because, <laughs> of course, anytime when you, you leave apple juice out and 
in in September in the south in a little bit of warm weather, you're going to get some fermentation. And cider is really made just like wine. Wine is fermented grape juice. Cider is fermented apple juice. One of the things that cider makers look for, Ashley, that that your listeners may not be aware of is an apple that may not taste as good as an eating apple. And that's because fermented beverages achieve balance and depth with something called tannin. And tannin is the bitterness like in a in a tea bag. And that tannin in specifically cider apples, that's what gives a lot of balance and depth and richness to cider. And Josh, you yourself are trying your hand at some cider making, aren't you? It, it's basement cider. That's, that's the best way to describe it. <laughs> so how did you get into all of this? And when you started this journey, Josh, did you even realize in tasting probably hundreds of flavors of apples, I'm guessing, that there is such a difference and such a personality and unique characteristic to each one? Um, yeah, it was in my own yard. Uh, as I said, I sort of inherited uh, these older trees. And I mean, my, my world was forever changed in that, you know, it, while I had, yes, a Golden Delicious and a Granny Smith, uh, I also had, um, you know, King David. I, I always talk about King David because, man, if you've ever tasted one of these, uh, your world will be forever changed in terms of what you uh, expect from an apple in, in terms of taste and and all of those things. And then I think as I enjoyed these tastes, I also, you know, started learning about the stories and the origins. And, you know, then you're just hooked um, when you start finding out, you know, the Grimes Golden in my backyard was just a chance seedling from the late 1700s. And there's a a town park named after this variety. And and gavels, when the uh, original tree died, the the local uh, courts and uh, horticultural societies in West Virginia made gavels of that original tree. It was so important. Uh, You're hooked, yeah. Wow. (laughs) So speaking with Josh Fooder, his county extension agent, does so much more in Cherokee County. And Diane Flint, author of a new book, Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South. And I want both of you, in the research you've done, the stories you've been told, and things that others have shared with you, I want both of you, and I'll start with you, Diane, what's the most interesting factor, maybe there's more than one, that you learned about apples hundreds of years ago? We could go on and on. For me, you know, as a Georgia native, farming, although it wasn't my first career, it's, it's an old calling for me. And I wasn't aware that in the 17 and 1800s, apples grew all over the South. Some of the most storied apples came from the coastal South, from the coast of Virginia and South Carolina, from places like Addisto, South Carolina. Um, they're apples from, from South Alabama. Uh, Mississippi was one of the most, there was one of the most famous Southern fruit tree nurseries was in Mississippi outside of Natchez. And we just don't think about those regions as important apple growing areas and even commercial apple growing areas. Tidewater, Virginia, which is coastal Virginia in sandy soil, exported apples to to the north, um, early season apples, you know, put those on ships and sent them up to Boston and New York. And that was such a surprise for me. Probably the most storied fruit tree nurseries in the South were outside of Columbia, South Carolina, and Georgia's own fruit land, which was outside of Augusta. Right. 
Wow. And Washington State, I would think, ranks number one as the you know top apple producer. Where does the South rank? You know, the, the South now, I believe, is about fifth in production behind uh, Pennsylvania and New York State. But Washington State produces the bulk of apples um, grown in the United States. And one interesting Southern story about that is that a North Carolina Quaker and abolitionist, Henderson Llewellyn, um, moved several times west, ended up in Ohio, and then traveled the Oregon Trail with a wagon load of 700 apple trees, including (laughs) Southern varieties that he brought from North Carolina and founded the Pacific Northwest apple industry with that load of apples, including many, many Southern varieties. And Josh, with you, um, are there stories that go along with some of the varieties that you have as close as in your backyard or just other people you've talked to? Give me an interesting piece of history that just blew your mind about apples. For me, Ashley, the thing that endears me most to my work with apples and, and apples is I've just been able to meet so many people. They have an apple variety. Most of them don't know the variety anymore. And to me, it's less important that the variety, is it the lost one, is it a known one? That tree uh, is a member of their family. I've met people well into their 70s and 80s that that tree is still on family property that they were climbing as a, as a child. To me, that's what's most important about, you know, the work I do, teaching them the graphs, sometimes, you know, saving a tree that's, you know, reaching the end of its life is, you know, hopefully we're able to keep these family members around for that next generation of what will hopefully then be apple lovers themselves. So, you know, if there are just apple trees and orchards without being labeled or properly identified, how do you go about finding what variety is what if those trees aren't? you know, already priorly labeled, or maybe the farm got lost out of the family to, to another one's hands? How do you even know? One of the most important ways is what Josh has referred to is the family records and family history. Of, you know, there's still some older family members who might remember when that tree was grafted and planted. Um, they might remember what the family called the tree. Um, and one of the things I learned early on in my research on apples is that Southern apples carry many names, as in scores and scores of names. So the name the family might have for the apple might not be the most commonly used name for that variety, but at least um, that points you in a direction. And uh, Josh has done some workshops on apple identification. There's some, some um, you know, very prescribed ways of, of looking at apples and evaluating them. But now Washington State University is doing DNA testing and creating um, a a library of genetic material. I found, um, I did some research for my book at Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina, a Quaker school that that once had a farm and a large orchard on their campus there in Guilford County. And that was a very important horticultural area and apple growing area in the 1800s and i found out in my research that they that they had a very old tree on campus that they believe was planted perhaps as early as the late 1800s and i was able to visit this tree and you know help the grounds people do a little bit of light pruning it's it's almost dead that the inside of the trunks are are completely um 
completely hollow, but there's a lot of living tissue on the outside. So I gathered grafting wood. Um, three of us uh, um, growers have, have grafted that variety so it, it's preserved. And we actually had it genetic tested, and we found out the variety name. So now that community, that college community, has more knowledge about their their old tree, and they can celebrate it in special ways. That is truly special that you were able to do that, and that is a lasting legacy for sure. Now, thinking here in Georgia, Josh, our friend Becky Griffin works up at the Georgia Mountain Research and Education Center, the Blairsville campus, if you will, of the University of Georgia and the research they do up there. And it's been a couple of years, Josh, since she showed me some of the orchard that you all are working on to bring together some of these lost varieties, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have about 130 uh, varieties up there now. And and the, the main mission was really uh, to at least start to preserve the stuff that we still have. And in doing so, publicize, get the word out about what we're doing, and then hope that some of those trees that are still out there, uh, you know, we can't drive every country road in the state, you know, avenues like your show and uh, the Market Bulletin and others to get the word out of what we're doing. And then hopefully the public would respond and, and reach out to us about their family tree. And and we've been able to get about, uh, I think, 10 submissions uh, since we first put in the initial block of trees and with some pretty strong leads. I mean, there's, there's one in particular. If it comes true that it's this family variety, uh, and I say family, that was actually the name assigned to it. Oh. But it was a Georgia apple, last seen in trade catalogs in 1906. But it is very unique in that it is one of the few southern apples, and especially Georgia apples, that was in kind of the earliest text of uh, cataloging um, apples in North America, which was the apples of New York. Um, So this variety was described in that book uh, with uh, some line drawings and images. As we start to see more fruit from it, we can compare it with those descriptions uh, in that early uh, Apples of New York book and and see if that's uh, indeed what we do have there. What Josh is saying is so exciting, and that's at the center of discovering some of these old varieties that have been lost. One unique thing about the South and its apples is that the South had more family apples than other parts of the country. And these are apples that were grown by a single family. Maybe they carried the family name or the family gave them a different name um, in Georgia. Um, the Pharaoh family saved an apple called Sam Apple. Near me in the in the southern Appalachians in Virginia, close to the North Carolina border, the Barrier family saved an apple called Davidson Sweeting. So there's all this family history connected. People remember, you know, receiving their apple when when many southern apples were kind of passed along with weddings, either by pulling up a you know, a root sucker, which is part of the tissue of the mother tree, or by or by grafting and sending a, a tree off with the person um, who got married and, and left the area. That memory, that historical memory and family memory, is just so important. It ties people to place, even if they've moved away, even if they're living in Atlanta now. They have a connection back to their home place, and that is so uniquely Southern. Um, you asked earlier about who brought Southern apples to the attention of of the world. And one of the great names, of course, Jim Lawson um, has been mentioned, a great nurseryman who's still living at age 96 in Ball Ground, Georgia. 
Um, Lee Calhoun wrote a book um, called Old Southern Apples, which is kind of the Bible for apple enthusiasts. Fascinating. And and with some of your history, you said, you know, that can often be home. And home for you is what, North Carolina, Virginia area, right? That's exactly right. Our farm is in southwestern Virginia in the Blue Ridge Mountains, southern Appalachians. And we're just north of Mount Airy, North Carolina. Now, anybody that's heard about or knows about uh, Foggy Ridge and the cidery, tell folks how they can get engaged, whether or not the tasting room is still open, whether or not farm tours are available. How can folks discover your piece of heaven right there in, in Virginia? Well, it is a piece of heaven, it's a, and it's, it shares a lot with North Georgia, with, with Josh's area. Um, at Foggy Ridge, we now sell our fruit to other cider makers across the South, and we occasionally get farm tours here. It's a beautiful area to visit, um, very um, scenic. We're close to the Blue Ridge Parkway, and uh, there's some great cider makers out there making cider with apples from Foggy Ridge Cider now. Well, Josh, in a lot of the research that you've done, and even referencing Diane's book, which you've had your hands on for a while, Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South, um, you are aware of some of the mapping and the just really good spot-on record-keeping that kind of reveals some of the history of apples here as far back as, what, the early 1800s? Yeah, well, and this is thanks to, you know, Diane's years of research that she, you know, shares with the world in her book here, uh, but was very eye-opening to me was, uh, Diane, you included a, a map here that I guess was done by government surveyors uh, at the time of the Cherokee removal, um, but it shows a distribution of apple trees where each dot is uh, 30 trees, and I am right in the center of where it appears to be the most dots. Wow. Um, I've sent this map here to our county's GIS people to see if we can transpose an outline of Cherokee County's, uh, you know, actual existing uh, county boundaries. But I think we've got to be right in this hot spot of this map where it looks like there's the most amount of apple trees. And so okay. my question would be, you know, we in, in your book uh, and in other records, we learn about uh, Jarvis Van Buren, early nurseryman who came in uh, and is attributed of sort of going out and hunting and finding a lot of these um, abandoned uh, Cherokee orchards, then bringing them into the trade, sometimes with different names. But it looks like he, he was in the wrong area. He was in the northeast part of the state. He should have been down here. How many have we lost here down in, in our portion of, of the state? That's one reason that what you're doing is and, and you're in such rich apple territory. Georgia was originated many, many southern apples, and part of that was due to Fruitlands and the work that Prosper Berkman's did at that very large and, and famous nursery outside of Augusta. But a big part of, of Georgia's apple heritage resides with the Cherokee. And after the Cherokee people were forcibly removed from their land, after 1836 and the Indian Removal Act, their orchards remained. And the reason we know about them is that federal evaluators went into Cherokee land and recorded the possessions, which were then um, given to, to Georgians, and recorded all the orchards. And over half the Georgia Cherokee households had mature orchards. And by mature, I'm not talking about the semi-dwarf, 15, 18-foot trees I have in my orchard, 
these uh, trees were grown on their on their own roots, so they made a full-size tree, so 20 or 30 feet tall trees. Major Ridge was one of the largest Cherokee landowners. He had a 1,000 peach trees and almost 500 apple trees. Wow. And the Cherokee people lost all that at Indian removal. But a Georgia a nurseryman, Jarvis Van Buren, uh, went into Cherokee territory over several years, gathered apples and gathered grafting wood, and introduced those apples to the nursery trade. Many of those apples were late-keeping varieties, and those late-season apples became known as some of the most you know, favored and important apples in the southern nursery world. And what are some of the varieties, as we're wrapping things up, Diane, that you want people to be aware of or maybe be on the lookout for or even share with all of you if they know that their family has them? There's so many names out there. I think just exploring and tasting apples at your farmer's market, you know, visiting small orchards that are still growing some of these old varieties. And this is not to say that there's some delicious new varieties out there as well that um, some of the modern orchards grow. But some of these old varieties are just so special and the flavors, the flavors really speak to you. One more thing about southern apples, we had apples 12 months a year. I mean, we have apples that ripen in June Mm -hmm. and we have apples that you can pick in November and keep in a root cellar or piled under a bunch of straw in the barn and they're still good in April and May. So we once had apples 12 months a year, a different apple for each month. See, that's but that's what a lot of folks don't know. And I think here in Georgia, especially North Georgia, agritourism is so big and the apple farms are just such a popular family thing to do uh, this time of year. Folks don't even think about them year-round. But uh, as a parting thought from each of you, your favorite way to enjoy apples. I mean, I'm thinking cider and apple pies, butter, all that kind of stuff. But Josh, how would you prefer your apple? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, man, that's really hard to say. Um, obviously, fresh in hand, hard to beat. Um, but this weekend, I made uh, about 14 quarts of applesauce, you know, for the kids. So, and, and I think that's the great thing about apples is there's so many ways to enjoy them. And Diane, it's like asking you to pick a favorite child, but what say you? (laughs) Well, I'm very old school. I like fried apples for breakfast, Hmm. preferably fried in bacon fat. (laughs) (laughs) A southern girl. (laughs) Well, some of the apple farms that I mentioned, apple orchards here in Georgia, if you want to find out any more about those, you can go to georgia-agritourism.org and more about Diane's book on Amazon. You'll look for Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived. The Surprising Story of Apples in the South. My thanks to both of you. I knew you would tag team this interview so well. Josh Fooder with Cherokee County Extension and Diane Flint, author of this latest, greatest book. Um, both of you, thank you so much for your time and your passion and your research. It's thank been you, great Ashley. to be with you, Ashley. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.